This podcast covers a double homicide that occurred in Wildwood, Florida in 1972. There have been no arrests in this case. All individuals are considered innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Every case has them. In 21 seasons and probably as many more cases that never made it to the podcast, but I researched nonetheless, there's always at least one, sometimes more, rabbit holes that send police on a goose chase that leads nowhere. Carl de Gregory was but one of the goose chases in this case. There were two that sucked up time and resources, but for the sake of brevity, we'll just look at one. On March 2nd, 1972, Carl de Gregory killed Clovis and May Powell in their home in North Carolina. This would be about eight days after the murders of Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins. Notably, for our purposes anyway, the Powells had both received head wounds inflicted by a blunt instrument as well as gunshot wounds, so not a sharp weapon like was used in the cemetery murders. Carl de Gregory was eventually arrested in Ormond Beach, Florida, two days after he murdered the Powells. Unfortunately, his travels brought him close enough to Wildwood, Florida, that the mere proximity is what piqued the curiosity of the investigators in Shirley and Roger's case. Well, that, and it was also another double homicide. But proximity wasn't the only reason, because spurred on by the sudden attention of multiple law enforcement agencies all clamoring to talk to him about their unsolved homicides, and certainly aided by what would later be revealed as a desire to get sent to a state mental facility rather than prison, Carl de Gregory actually confessed to killing Shirley Witten and Roger Higgins. On the stand in the Powell's case, Carl de Gregory told the jury that Michael, his imaginary twin brother, was with him on February 21, 1972 in Wildwood, Florida, when he stopped at a restaurant and saw a man and a woman leave the restaurant and get into a vehicle. He said that he remembered following this couple to a nearby cemetery and coming up to the vehicle and punching both of the occupants with a knife, but he didn't remember seeing any blood. On the stand, Deputy Sheriff Wayne Allen, investigator for the Volusia County Sheriff's Office in DeLand, told the jury that Carl DeGregory had told him, under questioning, that he was responsible for these killings as well as three more females and another triple homicide. But the deputy sheriff told the jury that he was not convinced that the killings were done by Carl de Gregory. Other law enforcement officers from Florida had also testified about their cases, and they noted at that time that investigations concerning de Gregory were still underway in Florida. The whole thing had a very Henry Lee Lucas vibe, and you guys who are longtime listeners know exactly who I'm talking about. The guy who, along with his buddy, Otis Toll, confessed to a shitload of murders that they didn't actually commit. I am certain that all of the law enforcement attention played into that gross miscarriage of justice that still has its tentacles woven into hundreds of unsolved murders across the country to this day. In court records that would later come out when Carl de Gregory appealed his conviction, was this stunner. Some of the information given by these police officers tended to show that Carl de Gregory had been told about the Florida slayings during a police interrogation on March 9, 1972. It was only after that date 
that he started talking about his involvement in the Melrose and Wildwood incidents. So there it was, again, a situation where members of law enforcement, who were desperate to solve their unsolved homicides, gave too many details to someone who then fashioned out of them false confessions. As it turned out, what Mr. DeGregory wanted was an innocent by reason of insanity plea, and he clearly thought that the multiple cases where his evil twin Michael was the culprit would get him there. The jury convicted Carl DeGregory in July of 1973 of two charges of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to concurrent life sentences. Yet he was considered for parole in 1979, just six years later, and then again in 81, but his parole was denied. But in 82, the Division of Prisons recommended Carl for a Mutual Agreement Parole Program, or MAP, over the objections of the district attorney. That parole program was actually approved, and Carl de Gregory was paroled on August 13, 1984. And unfortunately, it didn't take long for him to offend again. Eight months, to be precise. Less than a year after his release, Carl de Gregory went to the home of a friend, and once inside, he shot her husband, grabbed the wife and forced her out of the house and into a vehicle as their two teenage kids watched helplessly. Carl then took his lifelong friend to a hotel room in Myrtle Beach, and by the time police found them, they both had a single shotgun wound to the head. It would later come out in trial that he had fashioned a fictional account of his early life, creating a former German officer as a father and a French mother, both dying tragically, instead of separate health conditions as was the actual reality. In this version of his life, and there would be others, Carl was a twin separated in infancy from his brother Michael who had inherited the family wealth that should have been his. Then, in his story, an Air Force pilot became his guardian. But he later crashed and died. In this story, Carl had attended the military and went to college in Texas. And these lies would make it onto his 1968 marriage license. And the fake brother's name even ended up on his insurance policy. Now these are obviously not the details of someone with a harmless flight of fancy a running narrative that's only in his head, which serves to stave off boredom on particularly slow days. No, I think this is a man who was not altogether there in relation to the world around him. I suspect that the members of law enforcement in Florida eventually realized that Carl de Gregory was a rabbit hole that they wished they had never jumped down. But shit happens. False confessions are the bane of existence of anyone interested in justice. They all too often muddy the waters as truth sinks to a murky bottom that sucks everything within sucking distance into its never-ending abyss, obscuring reality and the truth, sometimes forever. At least this false confession didn't end with a conviction. A supplemental report from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement within the case file says this about Carl DeGregory. His purpose in lying is that he is currently serving a double life sentence in North Carolina. He is trying to return to Florida to be found insane and sentenced to a hospital. It was also felt that although de Gregory does have a thorough knowledge of these crimes, this knowledge was derived from crime scene photographs, information inadvertently supplied to him by investigating officers, 
and information supplied to him by his attorney and friends. Also, he was brought to the crime scene. Yeah, that's not good, is it? So it ended up being a huge waste of time and resources that could have been better allocated in Shirley and Roger's case. And because it happened so early in the case, just days after their murders, it's possible that things were missed because of it. But there's something that we all need to understand. Members of law enforcement, despite their training and all of the tools and resources at their disposal, are no less susceptible than the average person to grasping for unconnected dots when the space between the two is within reach. In this case, they finally had to step back and ask themselves, what actual evidence do we have that puts Carl de Gregory in that cemetery on that night? And the answer to that is nothing. But there were those hazy faux dots out there floating around, just waiting to be connected. And when one of those hazy dots is someone actually confessing, well, that does tend to muddy the water just a scotch. The testimony of his defense argued that Carl's alter-ego twin, Michael, exploded uncontrollably at the suggestion of unchaste sex, like he told them that he had witnessed in the bedroom of his adopted father, and who knows if that story was true. But I am certain that police were thinking, surely someone with that kind of psychological trauma is capable of what occurred in the cemetery, right? Someone could have stopped in the restaurant at the truck stop where Shirley worked that night and saw her leave with a man and then followed her to the cemetery. That, in fact, is likely what happened. It's just not likely that that someone was a random observer with no vested interest in one or both of the victims. It's more likely that it was someone who knew Shirley already and had reason to be upset that she was leaving the restaurant with a stranger. It is tempting, as instinctive as a hum, really, to try and connect dots. But the problem is that most of us are susceptible to seeing dots that aren't really there. Law enforcement in multiple jurisdictions were looking at Carl de Gregory because he was a big fat dot, and they had cases that had stalled. They had no suspects, and the violence he perpetrated was as vicious as the cases that they were looking at. They all looked like passion. Big fat dots. Revenge motives. More dots. All overkill. Dot, dot, dot. But it appears that by the time law enforcement was releasing stories to the local papers in 2011 about reopening the case of the cemetery murders, they were laser-focused on things a little closer to home. I will say that the record-keeping around the de Gregory incident is fascinating. A supplemental report dated November of 1973, after the sheriff had gone down the de Gregory rabbit hole and been told by the state attorney that he wouldn't take the case, that there was nothing there after the FDLE and FBI agents did their own investigation, and two polygraphs, and again came up with nothing. A page from the FDLE investigation reads as follows. Sheriff Page suggested he would continue the investigation, but he felt he would probably wait until after January 1st, 1974, to begin that investigation. This investigation will be placed on inactive status until such time as new leads are established. So that feels a whole lot like the agency sort of tossing in the towel for a while. That same FDLE agent checked back a few months later, and Sheriff Page told him they had no new, tangible leads. Now we're going to skip forward about 20 years, during a reinvestigation point. On October 12, 1995, to be exact, there was a note written 
on one of the fingerprint reports that said, Looked at the wrong... Beneath that irritating beep is a last name. And it's the last name of one of the handful of guys that were friends with Roy and Daryl, who had all had their fingerprints checked against the unknown prints in Shirley's vehicle. And they ran a bunch of them. It's likely that if you were in their friend group, and cops thought that you may have been in the cemetery that night, you had your fingerprints checked back in 1972. And I should probably mention now that the only fingerprint that came back as a match from Shirley's vehicle to anyone tested up to that time was one of Daryl's. It was located in the horn area of the steering wheel. When he was interviewed, he adamantly stated that he had never operated Shirley's vehicle. However, finding his prints in that car really don't mean anything because Daryl told police that he had been in Shirley's vehicle a week prior to her murder. So for practical reasons, we have to set that data point aside as essentially meaningless. However, that beep meant that in one case they had been looking at the wrong person with the same last name, and as it would turn out, someone bearing that last name had dated Shirley, and according to her brother, was someone who wouldn't take no for an answer. Here's Shirley's brother again. There's only one or two I think she dated that were actually in the same grade, and the other ones that I know about um, obviously are um, from those outlying towns. A couple of them uh, she met um, with her job because she was, I said she was in 12th grade, you worked half a day, you went to school half a day and you worked half a day. And the school helped get you a job and stuff like that. And uh, so one of the guys was actually, uh, he was a teacher. She was already graduated though. I mean, she didn't take him as a, as a student, but, and they dated for a while. And he wanted to get married and she wasn't ready for that. So that didn't last, but he, you know, he was, he was there for a number of years. I don't know how long he stayed, but he was there for a number of years. And eventually married somebody else and, you know, everything was fine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, another guy she met in high school, again, I, I knew him somewhat. I knew him when I saw him and stuff like that. Um, but there was, again, there was never any trouble with any of the local guys that she knew. Now, the only one that I would, the only one that I always have questions about is Yeah, I know his name has got to be in those documents somewhere. He was the one she dated probably longer than any of them. It's funny because he's the one name that's not on there. I need to... He he was a year... I think he was a year ahead of her. Were they dating right up to when this... No, they they dated before all that happened. Um, Mm. If I had to guess, I would say probably the the spring-ish time frame the year before. Spring the year before, okay, and... But, but he, but again, my assessment of him, though, he was really into her, and little tidbits that, that pop into mind is, yeah, he was a little controlling. Mm. He didn't, he didn't like the breakup. There should be police interview reports for him, I mean, because okay. I know I would have said it, I know my father would have said it, because my father wasn't real keen on him any, either. I think... The teacher, I can't remember who was first or who was second, but I think those there was an overlap with those two. I've I, I never heard her ever use the word coin state with any of them. No, okay, all right. So, I mean, from again, from my point of view, uh, she just went out with him to have a good time, okay. 
and I mean, you know, because she she was at the age now where she could go, you know, out with with guys, and you know, her since she lived at home, you know, her curfew was different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I never, I don't believe that she was ever serious about any of them. Okay, did she date some of them? And you know, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I will say this to you, whether you know it's right or wrong or whatever, whatever you think about it. But I mean. When she went out with these people, I mean, they they smoked marijuana. They all did. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I mean, it was just that's what they did back in those days. You know, it's interesting because you're saying, as her brother, you would not say that she had any, you know, going steady with any of them, and it's possible that he was more into her than she was into him. Very possible. Yeah. Right. Okay. E- easy. Yeah, all right. Because I mean, she was that personable kind of person, and so yeah, I mean, if a guy, if she went out with a guy a few times, you know, usually. You know, how, like how it was in those days, they're hers or they're his. Mm-hmm. You know, that's my girlfriend. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think they most, a couple of them anyway, were more into her than she was into them. And I I say that because she was always saying, you know, she doesn't want to go, you know, she didn't want to get married to that guy. He would have been the best one to marry. I mean, he was a college graduate. He was teaching school. He was making money. He was a football coach, too, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he would have been the more person most high school girls would have gravitated to. Right. If she wanted she, to settle down, that would have been the right. one. Right. But she didn't want to do that. So that's why I was saying, and, and even all these other times, you know, after that, the people she dated with, from my point of view, she was never with them for very long because, again, I think that's the problem. They got more serious and she's, that's not what she wanted. And she was only 19, for goodness sakes, you know? Exactly. I mean, exactly. So do you remember being interviewed by police and do you have a sense of what types of questions they were asking you other than boys that she dated? Did they lean in any, did it feel to you like they had a specific suspect in mind when you talked to them? The only, the only time I remember talking to them is, again, I was in high school, we worked, we were in school half a day and we worked half a day. I was at my job, which was at a gas station out at the intersection of where the truck stop was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I remember a detective coming out to talk to him. And I, so we sat in my car, or his car, probably his car, sat in his car, and he asked questions. But he never, from what I remember, he never led on that he, they had any suspects. How so, close to the murder was this interview? Right after, or? Oh, oh, it was fairly close to afterwards, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, it was fairly close afterwards, and, uh, again, we talked, I don't remember if we talked for a while, but he just asked me basic questions, you know, do you know where she was at night or who was, who was she with or why would she leave and, you know, kind of questions like that. But no, I, I don't recall having any sense that there was any one person they were looking for. And that's um, the reason I bring up the name because from what I remember, he lived in that general area. Did he? he okay. Known, he would have known. Yeah. He would have known that that's where it was. Did um, you know to um, go up to the truck stop when she was working up there or any other job that she worked at? No. I mean, once, once she stopped dating me, I mean, I knew he, he pursued her a while when they kind of, I guess you'd say, broke up. Mm-hmm. But he pursued her for a while because she talked about, you know, he kept wanting her to go out with him and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, nothing in depth, just other than, you know, he kept wanting her to go out and he wouldn't. It was just odd. It was just one of those, you know, again, boyfriend, girlfriend, she doesn't want him, and 
Yeah, he's persistent. I wonder why that's not on your list. That bothers me now that that is not on the list because you gave a very specific list of... of... There's no way he could... Well, again, you know, looking back at the time and how things run in a small town, Hmm. everybody knows everybody. And some kids like that, they know all the sheriffs and all that kind of stuff. You know, again, my two cents be that they uh, could have easily just... So you're pretty certain that you not only mentioned his name, but also mentioned that you had gone to Daryl's house that night. Oh, absolutely. Okay. No way I, would I mean, those would be literally the two most important things that I would yeah, think. Go, yeah, going to that guy's house was the, to me, that was the answer. Right. <laughs> you know, and again, I'm, you know, what, I'm 17 years old. So, yeah, that to me, that would have been it. So it seems to me if it was Daryl's house and that night you believe that's who she was dating at the time. She, she had seen him, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can't say that she... I mean, I, I know she was going out with him. Now, timing, I don't know, because, you know, we didn't always, you know... she If she was quit going out with him, she was going out with somebody else, and I didn't know she'd switch boyfriend. Well, I uh, guess... Boyfriend. Then the question is, what I'm trying to figure out is why you would go to Daryl's house and not... Because wasn't in the picture during... Gotcha. Okay. He was early. He was way early. Okay. So, uh, to your mind, so he was... Daryl okay. was the last one that I knew that she was seeing more of. And that's what you say in the report. They say, Daryl dated Shirley more than anyone else during the months of December, January, and February. Yeah. Shirley liked Daryl best of all the boys that she had dated in the recent past. And you knew of no trouble between them. So, that's exactly how you quantify it. That he was the one that she liked the most during these th- few months in question. Um and that had dated. So that makes that makes sense to me. And it's shocking that you went over there. Why would he not come to the door is what I don't understand because... Uh, why would the mother not answer the door? Especially when I'm asking, has he seen my sister? She's missing. Right. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> exactly. Like, why would you not just say, oh, God, I'm, sure, I'm sorry. But they sure did pick him up first to talk to. And maybe yeah. that's why. Maybe that led them it, to him. It could be. I mean, yeah, it could be. Um, unless someone out of the truck stop stalling there... Um, you know, I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I didn't know that they picked him up first. I, you know, I just always wondered how they did that stuff. But no, I, I know I told somebody. Now, hmm. I mean, I, I'm sure I know I talked to the, I told the guy that. There's no way that I did not say that. Yeah, they were definitely on him first because the other girl that had gone out with Daryl, she had told me, she met Shirley. So what happened was she was the girl, she thought that maybe Daryl was dating them both at the same time, but he broke up with her to go out with Shirley. And her impression was that she basically said, he never looked at me like that. And she said, I could have, I couldn't not like Shirley. She was so nice. I didn't have a, a anything against her because I just thought, well, she's really sweet. I like her, you know, and they were at some music festival in Webster, I guess, when she met. And she said, I was under the impression that they were dating at the time. And, you know, that he definitely had feelings for her stronger than that yeah. me. And then she said the next day, his friend Thurman, um, called me no i called his friend thurman for uh, for they were all friends and he said did you hear shirley was killed and they have and um daryl's up at the police station and she got the impression that they meant he they'd arrested daryl and she said it had to have been the way he worded it because uh, um, i got off the phone and said my mom daryl's been arrested for killing shirley so that wasn't necessarily what happened but that was her impression i guess when she first so he was it was that morning they went right there to him first because i guess by all accounts that everyone they talked to 
said that's who she was dating last. Now, whether yeah, they... Yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, whether they were broken up at the time or were on again, off again, he says the last time he saw yeah. her was a week before, and obviously she, you know, she's leaving with a guy. So it's like you... seems to me like you said it, she was going out with, you know, different people, and she didn't probably, you know, wasn't really wanting to be going steady with anyone if she and that's why i said i don't think she was going steady with anyone now did they date often i mean they were together quite a bit it seems like i mean they didn't hang around our house together much at all um but yeah if they were still dating which again i can't quantify that but if they were still dating um then yeah i could see where he might be way more into her than she was to him because from what I knew of her, when she was dating somebody, that's all she dated. That's the only person she dated. Like when she was dating the coach, the the, the teacher, mm-hmm. she didn't see anybody else while she was seeing him. Until it got to the point where he, you know, started talking about marriage and stuff like that, and then she, you know, whoa, whoa. whoa. Yeah, and that's probably what she's feeling. I dearly don't want to do that right now. It's I don't, yeah, and and that yeah. may be the vibe that Daryl was giving her, and she didn't. Want, it was too much, you know. Like I don't, yeah. I'm not ready to be settled down with anyone. I just want to, yeah. and that sort of. You know, there, that can set up a scenario, and just like with the other guy that you mentioned, if if these guys are are feeling rebuffed, that's yeah. that's the recipe for you know, say what you want about violence, but most of the violence perpetrated is in the in this world are is men against women. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you know, so I mean, that's men, women aren't really the violent ones. Men, I mean, not that we don't do a lot of bad stuff, we do, but I'm just saying, you know, I've seen. <laughs> yeah, that's the reason I also like that. Which was also on my list of. And he just appeared to be, you know, a push, kind of a pushy guy. And, you know, he, he got mad if he didn't get his way a little bit. So, was, was he possessive? You know, easily with her rebuffing him mm-hmm. and him, you know, because he wasn't happy about it. Because, you know, they, he, as I said, he kind of pursued her even though they broke up. And she mentioned it a couple of times. So, you know, he was definitely wanting to be part of it. So what I knew of him... Mm-hmm. He, you know, he could have easily gotten pissed off and knew she, you know, maybe he was out at the truck stop and saw him leave. Or, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing. Maybe well, he was already out there when they showed up. I mean, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and, and that really does feel like someone who's stalking you or watching you or keeping right. an eye on you. And that could, it could be any number of, you know, a couple of right. these guys. So I mentioned name to a source who had been helping me identify people from the police report because she had known most of the guys mentioned. She had dated Daryl. When I mentioned name, she had a visceral reaction. What followed was the retelling of a horrible incident, but also it included at least one data point that I believe is relevant for its similarity to what may have transpired on the night Shirley and Roger were murdered. This woman told me that had raped her in 1976 while she was pregnant just four years after Shirley's murder. She gave me permission to share her story, and I'm going to do so in her own words. The first time I saw him, I was out with a lady friend. I didn't really know her that well. I mean, I knew her, but we had never really hung out. Anyways, we went to a bar. It was a very small bar where you couldn't help but see everybody that's in there. And he was there, and she spoke to him. And then she turned to me, and she said, Oh, you should know him. He's your cousin. I've always been very family-oriented, and I thought it was pretty cool to meet a new relative. We only talked for a few minutes, and we left, and I didn't see him anymore. Not that night. 
but the following weekend I ran into him again at a different bar and he started talking to me. And when the bar closed, a bunch of people were talking about going to get something to eat and I was driving my dad's truck and I knew I couldn't leave it parked anywhere so I insisted on taking my truck and he insisted on riding with me. I saw no problem with that. After all, he was my cousin. I can't remember how he got in the driver's seat, but somehow he did, and he suddenly pulled off into an orange grove. I knew what was coming when he did that. I begged and I pleaded. He turned off the truck, and he pulled the keys from the ignition, and he told me if I didn't shut up, he was going to throw the keys out into the orange grove as far as he could throw them. This was my dad's truck and I knew I couldn't let my dad know that I had somebody else in the truck and the keys were lost and my head was going in all directions and I wanted out of this situation and so I started talking more calmly to him, being pleasant, not screaming. All of a sudden he put the keys back in the ignition and he started the truck up and he started driving out of the orange grove. But as soon as he hit the pavement he turned the truck around and went back to the orange grove and he said, I came out here for a reason and I'm going to do it. So I grabbed the steering wheel and I tried to turn in the opposite direction and try to wreck us. There was a drop off in a lake on the other side of the road and I tried to steer the truck over there. I knew that I would rather die in that lake than let him do this to me. He knocked me over into the passenger side of the truck and he continued driving deep into the orange grove. I was so desperate I didn't know what to do. So I pretended I was going into labor. But when I did that, he said to me, You got yourself into this bitch. Now get yourself out of it. She said that afterward, stalked her. It got so bad that once she looked up and she saw him watching her at a bar, and she was with ten or so friends, and they were all made aware of the rape they had been. She had told people after it happened. So a couple of her guy friends followed him out into the parking lot. One grabbed a shotgun, and they basically told him in no uncertain terms to leave her the hell alone. Never bothered her again. She spent years trying to forget what happened. She even underwent hypnosis. And then I started asking questions, mentioned his name, and dragged it all back up to the surface. We discussed the incident over a period of days, and at one point I asked her if he had any weapons on him, and she said the second thing that chilled me. She said that second time when he drove back into the orange grove and he parked, he sat there disturbingly calm. He pulled out a pocket knife, and he proceeded to clean his fingernails with it. But the thing that stood out most for me from her story were those keys. How he had pulled them out of the ignition and threatened to toss them into the orange grove where she'd never be able to find them. Because the keys to Shirley's vehicle have never been recovered by police. The similar feature here in both instances is a perpetrator yanking the keys from the ignition to control his victim. And to me, that is a compelling data point. So I guess we're going to need to talk about The same day that I heard this woman's rape story, I found an article in the Tampa Bay Times about the case. It featured a story, and alongside it, a large picture of his father, Aubrey, standing on the cemetery road with his pickup truck in the background, pointing down to the still visible blood on the ground. From the point on that road where he was standing, he could have glanced over to his right in a northerly direction and looked straight at his own house across the pastures. I suspect the proximity to his house is what probably led that reporter on that day to knock on his door and ask if he had heard about the murders. 
Maybe they even asked him to come on over to the cemetery and take pictures with him. I surmise that's what happened because the other alternative would be that the reporter was already over at the cemetery taking pictures, looking all media-like, and Aubrey, on his own, decided to pop over and have a chat. However it occurred that day, the day after the bodies were discovered, it is interesting that the father of a guy who had dated Shirley managed to get snapped by a photojournalist pointing down to the blood on the ground of the guy that she was there with that night. I say interesting because, despite Shirley's brother telling me that he had given his name to police right after the homicide, his name does not appear on that list of boys that he mentioned. It is glaringly absent. It appears that's because they looked at the wrong Stay tuned. 